Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, Blade Disgusting's horror video game podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Paul. And this week we're chatting about the recently released The Last of Us Part 1, a remake of Naughty Dog's beloved 2013 stealth action game, The Last of Us, which follows smuggler Joel Miller as he escorts a mysterious girl, Ellie, across a post-apocalyptic United States that's ravaged by zombie-like creatures known as Infected. But it isn't just Neil and I this week shiving clickers and crafting Molotov cocktails as we've recruited GameSpot's very own Jake Decker to return to the world of The Last of Us. Jake, welcome to the show, man. Hello, thank you guys for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this game because I love it very much. (laughs) You made that very apparent from your coverage of the game for GameSpot. You not only wrote the review, but you also did the video review, right? Yes, I wrote the review, did the video review. I did like a breakdown of all the new features uh, and then a graphics comparison, which is probably the coolest one just because it's nuts how different those characters look. It's, yeah. uh, if you haven't watched it, I, I would give it a watch. I, like Tess especially just looks like a different person or like a person rather. Yeah, it just feels more like a character, uh, as to be said now, than um, just plot device as it felt before. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, from your coverage, that seemed like one of the aspects of the remake that was, you know, the most surprising in terms of, you know, it. sometimes people get bogged down in that conversation of like remakes, remasters. Is this just a digital kind of, uh, you know, uh, touching up of graphics and whatnot? But just from your coverage of it, it seems like that graphical update really does fuel already what is, you know, the emotional core of that original game, right? That being this phenomenal story with these very personable characters and the idea that that could even draw or be, you know, exemplified with just the graphical update, which some people, you know, have a tendency to write off, uh, has me very excited to chat about, you know, part one. I have to be upfront. I was unfortunately not able to play it, but I'm a, uh, a huge fan of the original. And, you know, of course, our very own Neil Bolt has also uh, played part one. So I'm really excited to dive into it a little bit more. But in starting, um, when you tweeted out about your review, you had said that uh, at the time you played the original game back in 2013, uh, you were chasing a career in film 
until you played The Last of Us. Uh, and the moment that you finished that game, you said that you started writing about games. So I'm curious, like, what was the quality about The Last of Us that made it a standout from other games you were playing uh, that ultimately played such a large role in your uh, career trajectory? Yeah, I, I, I think, honestly, The Last of Us came at a really good time for me. I was in college, let's see, it was like two years in college or so when it came out, and I've been playing games since I was a kid, you know, I, I remember playing Red and Blue, and I, I've always loved games, I think that's always been my main hobby, but growing up, I was really interested in like editing and, and film production and, and that side. And that's kind of where I figured my life trajectory would go, or at least that's what I'd try to do. I know mm-hmm. getting into the film industry is not necessarily a walk in the park. Um, but yeah, that that just seemed like a more logical step for what I was interested in. But when I played The Last of Us, I th- there was something about the way that story was told through the gameplay. And obviously it's a Naughty Dog game, so it's very cinematic, but like the way those characters felt like those characters in the gameplay as well in the cut as well as in the cutscene, which was an issue with Uncharted, right? Like I, I loved those games. I still love them, but Nathan Drake in gameplay is very different from Nathan Drake in the cutscenes. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that's something I didn't even really think about all that much. But I remember playing Last of Us and and I I, I felt like I was playing Joel. Like I felt like I was playing a character, not just a video game character. And the way they use that to kind of to 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 elevate the storytelling is what really got me into The Last of Us, and then also what kind of changed the trajectory of my career a little bit. I will say I was still in film production. You know, I went to college and I graduated in film production, and I was still very interested in that stuff. But um, when I saw that like this might be a viable path in games, I decided decided to chase that a little harder and. I think it paid off. It depends who you ask me. <laughs> well, I think that a lot of us have an experience somewhat similar in terms of, you know, consuming The Last of Us for the first time and it being something that was an immediate almost standout in sort of like readjusting our perception of the types of stories that could be told in games, right? I mean, they're it's like storytelling or cinematic storytelling in games wasn't exactly something new, but like you said, it was a type of storytelling that didn't break from any real moment. It kind of felt like, okay, here are these characters and they are the characters throughout almost 100% of the time. Whereas, as you said in the past, you know, there have been games where the character really shines in those cutscenes, but loses that, you know, personableness, or you don't necessarily learn a great deal of them when you're actually playing as them. Mm-hmm. It's more just, oh, I'm going to see what they do in cutscenes or listen to what they have to say. And for me, like, I was somebody that came to it, and I think I was also in either my second or third year of college. And I go through these kind of dips back in the day where I would be playing games, and then I would take like a good chunk of time away from games to, you know, focus on movies or something. And The Last of Us was the game that kind of re-triggered my love of games and really blending my love of film with my, you know, pastime of games that I had not been diving into all that much. Um, Neil, for you, like, what was your first experience with The Last of Us like? I think if I remember rightly, when we were talking about The Last of Us Part 2, I said about, you know, I got into this not by owning it for once, um, but by my friend basically loaning me his copy for a week you know, after reviews come out and that, and playing it for it as quick as I could, but thinking, oh God, I'm going to have to rush this and I'm not going to get the good experience, you know, which is like before I got into reviewing again. So, uh, you know, it was a, an alien thing. 
And yeah, it just it didn't matter. I was just spending every waking hour I had trying to get through it because it was just giving me all these vibes of things I'd really enjoyed. I think I mentioned it, these things before, but you know, it was Harry Adam Knight's The Fungus, uh, that novel, um, SOS The Final Escape or Disaster Report as it's known in America, um, and a little bit of Manhunt. You know, those things all together were like, oh, okay, this is weirdly for a big blockbuster thing feels like it's hitting my niche in a lot of ways. And then to add that to this, you know, well-constructed world that's been well built out, this story, and, you know, we're saying about how the characters feel consistent throughout it. You know, that's very much informed by the fact that they are in this world where that kind of action is the norm, you know. It's not like, well, you know, I've got to shoot 30 pirates to get this treasure just because, you know. It's like it's... No, everyone you see is liable to kill you and vice versa, you know. And Joel being the kind of person he is, it makes sense that he's quick to violent, be violent about things whenever he can. And I think as a sort of arc that goes on throughout, you can see how that corrupts anyone in the, who stays in this world long enough that they are eventually going to be like that the more they're out there in it. Yeah, I think that that was what was so standout for me when I played the game because it delivered on the promise that a lot of I'm just going to you know generalize it in terms of like zombie media right mm. a lot of zombie media over you know probably because of the dead uh, walking dead show you know and things of that nature like they have very much advertised the idea of like okay this is how people change people are the real enemies in the apocalypse and in terms of games the last of us is one that i found that every single person you meet feels like they are a byproduct of that world in a yeah. sense that's not overly artificial, I'll say, uh, and primarily through those interactions, you know, the characters that you come across, more or less, you can feel, especially in that opening section in Boston, right? Every character you come across, it's kind of like the myth of Joel or the myth of the other people that you're working with kind of like precedes them and that everybody knows them. Everybody knows that like, okay, this is what those people are about. They're not to be fucked with. And it's a world that just promotes that sense of hostility from the jump, but you mm. don't have to have a game that leads with a great deal of combat or something like that along maybe more traditional uh, games sort of mechanics and things like that. It's one that from the outset feels very cinematic. You're in control, but it's living the outbreak, right? Yeah. Which I also can't think of another zombie or infected game where you are living out the infection in real time, which I found to be, you know, really standout. And it's something that we've seen obviously in film for decades, but being in the the chaos of that, and you know, of course, Joel has to care for his daughter in that instance, you are playing the role of not only a parent, but the parent on their worst nightmare, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I found that that intro and of course the the incredibly upsetting way that that intro concludes was something that I was kind of like taken aback by in that I was like, well, this segment is only 15 minutes or so long. And yet I feel like I've gone on this emotional arc that in some games could take a half a game or even in film, it could take 45 minutes or half of a film's length to get there. Um, but like I said at the beginning, I unfortunately wasn't able to play the uh, the remake that recently came out for PS5, but both of you were. Yeah. So I'd like to kind of dive into the, that a little bit, the changes that were introduced, uh, some of the quality of life things, and of course the graphical uh, remastering of that or remake of that rather. Um, but I was genuinely kind of surprised by the contentious reception of that. Um, you know, people have always made jokes about remakes and remasters and ports and these things. 
But for a game that is critically and is loved by fans, it was very surprising to see The Last of Us kind of receive that backlash. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what did you guys think about the quality of life assurances or improvements, the graphical, you know, of course, uh, remaking and those did you guys find that this made for a successful remake or rather a necessary remake? Jake, how about you? Mm, that, that's a tough one. I I think the thing that really complicates this is the fact that Sony did release The Last of Us Remastered on mm. PlayStation 4. And now it's free on, if you have PlayStation Plus, I believe any tier of PlayStation Plus, you mm. can play The Last of Us Remastered. Yeah. And but 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 I think like as a remake this holds its own very well. Um, it adds a lot of new stuff. It nothing big, but it adds it adds a good amount of stuff that that can kind of tweak the experience a little bit, change it up. I mean, I think a big thing is accessibility. Yeah, all of those options are huge. Um, but I I, I kind of get when, when where people are coming from when they say the seventy dollar price tag is a little too much. For me personally, I don't think so. I mean, I got a code from Sony, but I also bought the game because I wanted a physical copy and I really, really like this game. I played through it twice. I sunk 30, 40 hours in it. Um, and it's... The way I see it is is like, this is, this is an excellent package for hardcore fans of The Last of Us. If you played the original Last of Us and you enjoyed it, but you don't necessarily feel the need to return to it or maybe you're just not ready for it, then wait yeah. is kind of how I see it. But like on its own as, as a product, I think, I think this is, this is a successful remake. Yeah, absolutely. I think the core thing of it is that if you come off it, uh, come to it, having played the last of us part two, a lot of the differences aren't very noticeable because it's so seamlessly flows through that game, you know, into this game. That you almost feel like, oh, hang on, was it always this way? And you have, which is always a great sign of a remake is when mm-hmm. it feels like it should just have been like that all along, and you, you don't notice it. Unfortunately, that doesn't help with the kind of crowd that are going to go, oh god, nothing's changed. It's the same. They're ripping us off, doing it like, and yeah, it's not really that, is it? It's um, it's ridiculous um how good it looks. And I think if we didn't have part two for comparison, then maybe the difference would be more prominent. But um, you know, the, the idea is clearly to sort of match up this with the sequel, make it all one consistent package. And you know, I, there's no doubt that's also done with you know the TV series coming along as well, and more people would want to come back to all this and go, well, here you go, here's a complete package that looks exactly the same, you know, all throughout. Because going back to even remastered, it, you know it, there are significant changes and differences, and you really, yeah, it really does take going back to notice them. Um, I think the key thing for me, as you were saying about Jake about um, the accessibility stuff, yeah, I discussed before about you know, with my hearing and not having like three D hearing personally. Games like this have always been a struggle to sort of get that part of it right and you know i found recently with um a razor headset i had that had haptic feedback in it was really good in hunt showdown because it would you know the haptic pulse of it would replicate distance and impacts properly and of course because that stuff is in here as well as part of the you know part of the rumble anyway 
it works with the headset too. So I was getting 3D quality sound effectively again. And yeah, it's it's like game changing for me again that I get to feel more involved and feel more in this place. And yeah, that that is always a great highlight when stuff like that happens. You know, and it's um it's difficult to sort of put into words when you don't you know come from that background or have that experience. But yeah, it is just like a wow moment when you suddenly have your world opened up in a game or like that, you know. It's um I watched Jaws last night in the cinema with the um three D and the you know, the restoration and all this stuff and you honestly would think it was always meant to be like that. You know, it's like the because it's been done so well and done so right and it just makes it this new and fresh experience, even though it also just has so much familiarity. And yeah, this is very much that kind of, you know, thing. In games, because of the way technology moves, you can't get away with just going, yeah, just scrub it and make it look nice for a bit and hope that it does okay. Sometimes you do have to sort of bring what your vision in line with what has happened in gaming in the years past. And yeah, while it's not like, you know, one-to-one with what part two does, it does enough to make it feel like a, a consistent whole and like that you could go from that to that and then it feel like a proper sequel to this, you know, and which is weird saying that about a game that came out afterwards, but it's, you know, that is where it's gone. So yeah, it's impressed me a lot, I have to say. You know, I, I could be cynical about it as well, but with the price thing, but I think back to when Metal Gear Solid Ground Zeroes came out and all I ever heard about it was, £25 costs too much. Uh, you only get three hours gameplay or something like that. It's like, whereas I got like 50, 60, 70 hours out of it, you know, because it's got, you know, it's designed to be replayed. Designed, it has so much depth to it when you think about it. And yeah, it just felt daft to have that argument that you know, £25 for that is too much. And I'm glad we kind of moved beyond that in a lot of ways, you know, when smaller games are getting that price point and can be like that. But yeah, 70 quid, fair enough. I didn't pay that much you know, because physical copies don't tend to cost that much if you get them in the right places. But still, I understand the uh, sort of apprehension. But then, like you were saying, it's like it's probably not for the, the people that are going to be apprehensive about it. It's going to be for the people who want this and who want what is essentially, you know, the, the, the criterion version of The Last of Us and anyone else can wait because it will come down in price. This is not Nintendo. They are not going to keep the price at a certain level and never waver. We've seen that. So, yeah. And at the very least, it'll end up on PS Plus. We know that at some point because what doesn't, you know, with those sort of things. Yeah. I, you know, as somebody that, again, has not had the chance to play it, but just from spending the last week replaying the remaster again, after, you know, it was the first time I think I've, replayed the remaster in maybe Mm. five years or something or since it came out maybe um but it was the thing where i went from playing the last of us part two for our chat neil that we had last year and now going into this and it was just from the standpoint of a you know basically walking back sort of the controls to what they were like from the release version of uh, The Last of Us. And the entire time I was playing through it again, I was just thinking, man, this really does not handle as well <laughs> as the sequel. And if anything, that's my, pr- I mean, the price of admission to play 
a version of the original game that handles like the sequel. I mean, for somebody like me that already is a massive fan of The Last of Us, both parts of it, I mean, I would pay some, I would pay, what is it, the $70 to play a game that at least handles like that. And then everything after that for somebody like me is basically gravy. You know, having that fantastic visual updating and whatnot, a lot of the accessibility features and tweaking that comes along with that is something that I would be sold on. But I, I suppose I do understand people that are maybe a little more hesitant from that standpoint. But like you yeah. said, Neil, I think fr- uh, phrasing it like it's the Criterion Collection release of one of the best games ever made, I think that that's something that you know people like the three of us would spring for. And that's kind of the types of features that I would want from a remake, right? Mm-hmm. And don't see it as being this superfluous thing where it's like, well... There's not, there's isn't really new content. They actually remove some content in the form of the multiplayer, but at the same time, getting to re-experiencing that game with you know improved controls. Not only that, improved AI, which is again like a sore subject with me yeah. a little bit with the uh, going back and playing the remaster. Um, not to say again, not to play like armchair uh, game director, game uh, developer, <laughs> and be like, well, they could have done that better. But at the same time, you can just see the leap from the original to the sequel and the fact that they really did change a good deal about how that game is played, giving the player more options, more approaches to combat and these things. I mean, being able to do those things in the remake in and of itself is like price of admission is well worth it just for that for me. I mean, you both both brought up like the Criterion Collection version of The Last of Us, but but I, I do find it fascinating how this stuff happens with movies all the time and people don't typically bat an eye. Like I own multiple copies of some of my favorite movies, right? Like I own like four copies of drive, multiple copies of blade runner, you know? And like I, to be fair, they are cheaper, right? For the most part. I mean that collector's edition of drive I got was not cheaper, but (laughs) um, for the most part, they usually are, but like, it's interesting because that conversation doesn't really happen around movies. And I, I imagine, and this is just kind of conjecture, but I imagine remastering a game is probably a lot harder than remastering a film, especially when you remake a game, because that that requires a ton of work. I mean, it's like with The Last of Us, like while the game is very similar, like you have to remake those characters essentially, right? Yeah. You have to, there's just a lot that goes into it. So like, I, I do find it strange that that uh, games typically get a lot more shit for this. And, and once again, I get it because some developers do kind of treat their audience not the best or, or no. publishers, I should say. Like, you know, the microtransaction situation. I mean, we have gotten plenty of really bad full price ports and, and um, remasters and such. So, like, I get it. But but. The Last of Us Part 1 remake does not feel as... It, it doesn't feel icky, I guess, no, if, no. if that makes sense. It doesn't feel like a cash grab. Yeah. It's not returning to the well for the sake of returning to the well because there's a new series coming out. That might be a smart you know, way to market it and a smart time frame to release it in. But at the same time, with a studio like Naughty Dog, right, they have the pedigree where it's like they're not going to take... They're arguably their most beloved, if not one of their most beloved IPs, and then kind of just push out this thing that mm-hmm. look that has another uprising or something like that, but then ends up being like just a cash grab, like you had said, Jake. Um, I guess in trying to tackle 
a majority of the updates and, you know, improvements that have been implemented. I guess, Jake, for you, like on your short list of the most impressive, whether it be quality of life improvements or just the graphical improvements, um, what what is sort of at the top of your list as being a real selling point for you for The Last of Us Part 1? I mentioned it in my review, but I think the, the big standout for me personally were the redone faces. I, I mean, Joel... There's more emotion in Joel. There's more. There's, there's more character to test. You can see. You can see different sides of Ellie that you couldn't see before. Like a lot of those traits I had known about those characters because I played the original like a dozen times or so. But seeing a lot of those different emotions reflected more acutely and more subtly in their faces and in their in their um their animations yeah was was really rewarding for me. Um, that that's the big one for me. I I think the accessibility stuff is really big too. And once again, like the cynical side is is kind of like okay, so there's like a seventy dollar price tag for accessibility, which right. when you phrase it that way, it doesn't seem that great. But but um, like I I don't really need any of that accessibility stuff. But I still went through that menu and I found ways to make that experience better just mm. by changing different settings, adjusting how, how I wanted subtitles to appear. There's a high contrast mode that was also in Last of Us Part 2 that I was able to use to hunt down some of th- some things that like I couldn't see. I mean, I, my eyesight's not great. I have glasses because it's not great. But even then, like a lot of those tiny little firefly pendants were uh, a yeah. <laughs> bit of a pain to hunt down. And high contrast <laughs> mode just lit them right up. And I was like, okay, I would have never seen this one hanging from a tree, you know, <laughs> 20 feet above me. For me, after again, like I'd mentioned, the uh, the way that Joel handles being improved upon, also like enemy AI being improved mm-hmm. upon, the nuances that you can get from you know that PS5 tech and that remaking the uh, cutscenes and all of these things for a game that on my I don't know I think I, I'm about halfway <laughs> to you, Jake, in terms of replays. I think this was my sixth time replaying it, mm-hmm. but playing the remaster, it's still such an emotionally moving game and those interactions with those characters and those performances, even if, you know, Troy Baker is a bit of a whiny bitch. um, (laughs) Like those performances are so fantastic that hold up immaculately well. It doesn't matter how many years we get removed from the release of The Last of Us. Those performances stand the test of time. So the idea that those performances could be even more, you know, high fidelity. And, you know, each of those, I was thinking after watching your review, I'm just imagining like those pauses that he has, that Joel has when he's talking to Ellie or when he's talking to Tess, right? And just, you already see a man that is like racked with pain, Ellie herself, right? All of the sort of mini stories in their life of living in this apocalyptic hell that get to this point. And the idea that that could be exemplified in a way that is, even more almost photorealistic or something along those lines. I mean, God, I don't know how you, I don't know how that's not something that's worth, you know, a price of admission in and of itself, because if it holds up on the remaster for me, I mean, geez, I can't even imagine getting to dive into it when I uh, inevitably get my hands on the <laughs> PS5. You brought it up, but the AI is is much better in, in the remaster, especially, or in the remake, especially if you play on harder difficulties. And for me, who really loves the combat of The Last of Us, that that's huge. Like that, that is what pulls me into that gameplay even more than anything is the fact that these enemies are persistent. They're smart. They're, they're employing advanced tactics, you know, like that, 
that is what makes the gameplay so compelling for me. And, and seeing that improved AI is huge. And I understand for some, they don't really care. They just want to shoot the enemies and get to the next cutscene. Totally cool. But like, if you are into the gameplay, like yeah. that AI, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, it does. I mean, it tells its own stories, which is what mm-hmm. you want in your combat. Um, I think back to a part I was playing in the Pittsburgh area when Ellie's providing sort of sniper fire cover like that and just the hilarity of a guy telling his mate to cover him and he goes yeah I got you and then Ellie immediately pops the guy's head like that it's like it's like it's you know I'd never seen it happen like that before it just happened to be that everything worked out that way so yeah these little emergent moments that combat can bring and it still feels like weighty and unprofessional when you're fighting you know it, it's it feels like you're in the moment of what you're doing rather than just being like, I am like this super skilled soldier who can do everything sort of thing. It very much feels like I'm a guy in his fifties who's lumbering around and like putting his full weight into everything like that. I mean, especially when it comes to like melee stuff and you know, he mm-hmm. really does just sort of bring the whole brunt of himself onto everything. He's like aggressive. It feels so meaty and now with those little tweaks and refinements it's just yeah it's um very much in keeping with the part two sort of viciousness not to not to challenge that but just to say like in playing the second you know part two and whatnot ellie Mm. is the way that she handles right not only is that a refining of the controls but it also you know feeds into her character somebody Mm. that grew up that was forced to grow up much faster than normal kids should ever, right? Because of the dangerous nature of the world and whatnot. And so the fact that when you get to part two and the controls are tightened up and, you know, her the sway that she has with weapons is not as ridiculous as Joel's is in the remaster, yeah. that's kind of like feeding into the idea that she's someone that has had to become proficient in combat to live in that world. From and a so, younger age as well. So yeah, you know, exactly. She's, lived, she's born into it. She's lived through it. So yeah, it feels more natural that she would be like the same for Abby. You know, it's, they are living that life and, uh, you know, they've known nothing else. You know, even if they had relative comfort at some point, they still live most of their life, you know, passionately fueled by vengeance or, or something else. And it shows, you know, they are, Joel, you know, and all he does, it's something that was there inside him and something that that has been pushed in him by situation, but he is very much still beaten down and trying to be not a person. You know, he's got emotional conflict in him, but most of the time it's methodical. It's not wanting to give himself away as a person. You think of how many times in that game he basically just avoids a question not just to ellie but to other people even when you think mm-hmm. well what's the harm in saying something there it's like and you realize it's because that's him it's like to protect himself to keep himself from being involved and always see the worst in people i, I think about you know the, the the sam sequence you know where he immediately just distrusts you know when it seems like and it makes sense but it could so easily have gone wrong because of the person he is. It's you think if you know, she, you know Ellie hadn't been there, it's a whole different situation altogether. And yeah, that's what makes that sort of journey between them very special. I think is that you know it's 
someone who is very much disturbed and damaged and is never going to come back from that, but in a weird twist of way sort of ends up having it feel like he has, you know, like he's got something to fight for, but he's still the same person he's been moulded into by time. And so, yeah, he's, yeah, he makes the decisions he does. Yeah, I was going to say that I think going, getting to replay The Last of Us for the remake and, you know, it being tightened up, that would almost feel a little more natural, I think, just Mm. because of, you know, going back and spending the week with the remaster, you know, again, there's like kind of almost a little bit of a goofy sway to the weapons where it's like, I think I'm missing a few more shots than I think I really should be. (laughs) And it doesn't always necessarily feel like somebody that has had to live through 20 years of the apocalypse, right? I think the game picks up 20 years later. Yeah. And, you know, that was something that, again, not to try to play uh, backseat like game dev or anything, but that was one of the things that took me out of it a little bit on revisiting it. And, you know, I would love to get the chance to just play through it in a way that really does make you feel like this survivor that is more proficient than just some of these hunters that you run through, right? These people that are, you know, um, (laughs) probably uh, falling in line with like the way that cannibals do in the apocalypse and whatnot, not taking care of themselves in these things. But Joel really is a warrior of the apocalypse in a way, no matter how much he tries to shut himself out from relationships. I mean, even his relationship with Tess, right? It's like, there's clearly a history there. And I think she even says at one point, like, if there was anything here, you'll like, listen to me and just go when I tell you to. And he's still somebody, though, that is very shut off from other people and relationships and whatnot and tries to hide the fact that he is this skilled warrior, if anything, and kind of just wants to be left with his his misery and his sorrow and whatnot. Yeah. Sorry, just to bring back to one piece of content thing that I I had in my mind for a while, but um, in terms of contention of price and there being no factions mode. I think it's always important to remember that factions came at a time where every game going would have a multiplayer mode to justify having some sort of online toll, if you will, and you know, to justify the cost of online playing and such and such. So factions, you know, whatever they say about it, only really existed because of that, you know, and I think it's kind of interesting that they're taking that as a separate thing now and making it into something bigger and more interesting because I think that's what we need. I think it would be a waste of time to make factions again as it was and then just have it out there. And I just don't think the audience is there, especially for a company like Sony who, yeah, they do things that are very hubris led now because they have had that position of power but it's easy to forget that as a company, one bad turn fucks them up. You know, that's it. They don't have the financial clout to, you know, bail themselves out again and again and again that Microsoft do. You know, they, they can't lose money on things. And unfortunately, that puts them in a bad position and it makes it easy for Microsoft to turn around and do things that make them look bad very uh, as a company. But um, so I can see the shrewdness of thinking, well, you know what, we don't need factions back here, but why don't, you know, if we're evolving The Last of Us as a thing anyway, hell, let's make a multiplayer Last of Us game that's a whole other thing that's bigger and better and you know could actually be something that has a life beyond 
the game it's attached to. So I think it's justified in that regard, you know, that you can have that separate and be separate because, you know, why not? And yeah, I, I'm not going to sit here and deny that Sony aren't a bit silly about some of the things they do in terms of pricing and what they put out. And I think this generation has been very up and down for them in, in that regard. You know, they put out stuff that is very crowd pleasing but not always uh, satisfying as a finished product. But um, they bankroll stuff like this in the past. You know, this was their big gamble of the PS3 era, as you think about it, you know, coming off Uncharted to do something more gritty for Naughty Dog. And here it was. And so adding a multiplayer thing in there was almost like a, a cushion at the time and now it's in a position where you'd never need it really if you didn't want to it, it, you know the last of us has that reputation it's going to be a tv show on hbo it, it's a big deal so yeah the fact that they're going to come back to it at all and give it respect and make it its own thing is to me personally more exciting you know i i, I like that idea a lot more than just having factions back as it was in the same way that Assassin's Creed's multiplayer, I loved, but I can appreciate why they stopped doing it because it was never, it was only there because of that era of gaming and them adding stuff because of a certain you know, time we were in. Um, but yeah, I, the fact they're going to go back to that, for instance, is exciting too. I want to see evolution, not just in that side, in the single player side, but in that multiplayer side. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I, I played a lot of Last of Us multiplayer. I really liked it. I Part of me was bummed that factions did not make it into this. But kind of to your point, like I, I don't know if I'd want a prettier looking factions. I want I want something like, like I want a new multiplayer experience in that universe, which is what they're doing. And, and I think too, right after playing Last of Us Part 2, like the things they added to combat, which didn't yes. make it into the part one remake, I, I think need to be in this new multiplayer experience, Absolutely. right? Like I want to be able to go prone. I want to, I want that improved like melee combat thing that they had, the dodging, like all, all that stuff would be, would be, would be great in a multiplayer mode and especially a more developed multiplayer mode because one of the cool things about factions was how it was more than just multiplayer. Like you had a group of people that you were looking out for and you do supply runs to get them uh, uh, to basically grow your, grow your little encampment. And I think they could do some really cool stuff if they double down on that and, and make a full game based on it. I mean, I think Neil Druckmann even said, um, was it during the Game Awards? He was like, there is going to be a story to this. Mm. It'll be different yeah. than most naughty dog stories but there is going to be a story and i'm super curious to see what a studio like naughty dog who is known for these incredible cinematic stories and what they can do in a like full budget multiplayer game and i don't i don't want to get too off topic here but like like yeah like it i'm with you it stings that it's not there but i think it makes a lot of sense and and if no multiplayer being there is a deal breaker for you then like Okay, I'd wait then, you know? Yeah, yeah, because it's going to come. It's yeah. like you, you don't have to buy this if that's the thing you wanted. This will be cheap down the line. And it's, it's why it's always a tricky thing when talking about a game, especially in review terms, is to bring up the price of it. It is almost 
inconsequential because it will not stay mm-hmm. that way unless it's Nintendo. And, yeah. yeah. But also just money's worth money, money has a different value to different people exactly. which, which is like exactly. at GameSpot we try not to talk too much about the price of something mm. in a review because you know like I said like $70 for me for The Last of Us Part 1 was worth it I did that now I've got some friends who are like absolutely not and it's like okay <laughs> I get it you know like mm. I, I, we're, we're in different situations I mean whether it be financial or just like time you know like yeah. do I even have time yeah. to play this so it, it, it's very nebulous to just simply focus on the price, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I get why, as we said, you know, because of the faction thing not being there, but technically that was true of Remastered. You know, it wasn't really the thing it was. As it was, it just happened to have Left Behind included, which this, of course, still has as well. Um, and the 70 quid thing, it, it's there because Sony made it there and they wanted it to be their price point. Again, as I was saying earlier, that's because they don't have that kind of freedom and control to say, well, you know, we we can just add everything to our subscription service day one because they can't. Because, And I agree with the methodology there that it would devalue the name of the big, the things that sell PlayStation mm-hmm. as a brand. You know, I think Xbox will find that in time, you know, will find that in time that it will be, detrimental to their games in the same way that you see it in streaming services for film that yeah sure something can be a really big deal but culturally it's nowhere you know red note is maybe a great thing on netflix in terms of like how many people watch it how many people talk about it you know it's you've got to see it like that it's like it's meaningless numbers in terms of, and I think cultural impact is important still, and to make something that causes debate and causes divisive, you know, conversation like again, this does because of its price point, as much as it is as a uh, an art form, and you know how people will dissect it for what it is. It needs to be like that, and I think. The further you get into that sort of game pass area of the idea of uh, blockbuster gaming, the less you get at games like this, you know, it's like, and cynical as you may be about it, it's still important, you know, to have games like this. Absolutely. I mean, at the same time, people might be bummed about a lack of multiplayer, but they have to settle for, you know, one of the best uh, campaigns of probably (laughs) the last few console cycles. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, you know, we'll keep chatting about some of the updates to the remake that you guys found to be really standout along with, you know, just we could probably highlight uh, a great deal of uh, the (laughs) elements of The Last of Us that all these years later still really hold up as being you know, a phenomenal blending of gameplay and whatnot, and also just cinematic storytelling. And we are back from our break. And in just getting to spend the last week replaying The Last of Us remaster, it was something that was, again, it kind of almost felt like the same sense of wonderment that I had the first time I played the game in just how seamless the storytelling is, basically from the moment you start the game, right? Of course, you're going to have cutscenes that are going to delve into a certain amount of exposition. You're going to have characters that have these emotional arcs. But I was really taken with the amount of not only environmental storytelling that happens, but also how the environments trigger dialogue, missable dialogue at that, 
between Ellie and Joel and how yeah. some of those interactions end up being the ones that stick with me the most, more so than even some of the things that are said in cutscenes, right? Of course, you have those moments like, oh, your watch is broken, Joel, which are still stand out and like burn into the back of my brain. But at the same time, you know, the interactions with the world itself. Um, and, you know, a lot of the times they feel like relics of the old world. In this most recent replay, I stumbled upon a poster for what's supposed to be essentially like Twilight on yeah. a city wall. And Teen Wolf, I think, right? No, not yeah. Teen Wolf. Something New Wolf, Dawn. Yeah. Something, yeah. I don't know. Something, yeah, something, something like werewolf, Part something two. lovey, something <laughs> young adult, uh, like would be the cover of a young adult novel, basically. But that uh, interaction really triggers dialogue with Ellie, who basically asks Joel about it, asks him about movies, and then he says, yeah, I had to see that one. Somebody dragged me to go see that. And Ellie's like, who would have dragged you to see that? And Joel just pauses and he's like, I don't remember, right? It was like what Neil was saying, just blocking himself off from having to rip off the Band-Aid of the trauma that he's never really faced for 20 years of losing his daughter. And I mean, that in of itself, you know, almost 10 years from when the original game was released is such a strong example of storytelling that doesn't need to bring the experience to a grinding halt. It's missable, it, but at the same time, it only takes a couple of seconds to really have that mm -hmm. moment. Um, and the game is filled with moments such as that. Mm -hmm. And it, it really just, again, it rings true to the idea that like the storytelling doesn't stop when the cutscene does. You can always be doing that. And, you know, of course, you're going to have characters interacting and speaking in these things during gameplay. But like the world itself, furthering your understanding of these individuals that have become a version of themselves that really they never would have had the world not essentially uh, ended which yeah. I find to be, again, just such a strong example of cinematic storytelling that all these years later holds up incredibly well. Mm, doesn't it just? Yeah, even when you... I mean, that's another nice thing about the remake, too, is that a lot of these environments look way more detailed. There's there's a lot more little things you can pick out in the environment that, I, I mean, I'm sure to some extent maybe you could have seen in the original, but it just feels like this remake was kind of designed in a way to highlight a lot of that stuff that yeah. may have been missed otherwise, because like maybe I'm looking too much into it, but like I'll go into a building and like, I'll see a broken mirror and that tells a story, right? Like, like yes. there's just all this little stuff, all, all these, these small details that, that feed into this overall narrative that, that just supports Joel's and Ellie's adventure as well as that world. And, and, and I think, that's another thing too that that is easy to overlook in a remake that is just visual. I mean that that's underselling it a little bit, but that's what a lot of people are saying that it just looks a little bit better. But 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 that's very important to the story. I mean, yeah, visually it is the the big thing, and I think something I noticed especially with this playthrough was that visual upgrade does give more impetus to things that weren't really in the foreground narratively um you know there are obvious things you can see like easter eggs and whatever you know the, and like skeletons posed in you know, corpses posed in certain ways that you know most games would get away with uh, as being you know environmental storytelling but mm -hmm. now as you say you know with the mirror stuff it, there are moments where you notice stuff that you didn't notice before because visually they're able to accentuate the entire environment in a way that it feels more like a place not just a corridor or a room you're going through it feels like 
life is in it, which was always there when you go back, you know, in terms of like, you know, it's remarkable how with a very limited set of tools back in the day, they still made each house, each environment feel like a different house or a different place. And here it's accentuated, you know, that it's there more and more that you go into a place and it feels like you can touch the history of it. You know, not just in letters, which is the obvious way or whatever, or notes, but in little details in the, in what is left behind. And yeah, you just come away with an enriched sense of uh, the world, which is you know, one of my favorite things about The Last of Us is I want to know more and more about this world. I want to know why it's like this or the history that we've missed in these 20 years, which is why I think it's mm-hmm. such a smart move to jump 20 years is you have all this untold history there that you're sort of gleaning from that there's some some stuff that's more immediate there's some stuff that's longer lasting and yeah it's just something about it you know i am a sucker for anything that goes into sort of abandoned or long abandoned environments and kind of touches upon that sort of history really well and I do often credit this being the game that really did that for me the most you know, in terms of that. But before it, you know, um, I mentioned it before, but SOS, the final escape disaster report, if you will, um, which was like survival horror, but natural disasters. And weirdly it had like the story behind what was going on in the place and, all these little things going on in the world and for something that felt so hokey and cheesy you were kind of taken aback by what it could do despite that you know how it could sort of convey a sense of what was going on a sense of what had happened like the corruption that led to this moment and I loved that you know and it's why it was immediately exciting for me the way that the last of us plays out is because that's a game that was showing up here to me just on a bigger budget better writing etc mm-hmm. etc et and so i was immediately oh wow in the same way that you know another reference point i have is manhunt and you kind of want to know this sort of well what's the deal why is this city abandoned why is everything like this why are they able to get away with doing this and there's little things behind the, the more immediate problem that you really get into that I don't think you can really achieve with like a really open world. You, you have to have something that is more you know, corridors and tunnels and pathways, you know, as, as backwards as it can sound. You can do so much in a smaller space when you have, you know, so much behind it and you've really put the work into making it this big law fest it's a it's a grand old time, it has to be said, to, for me to sort of revel in that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, to to your point, one one moment that stands out to me that that felt like a huge jump was, God, I think it's the suburbs area. Mm. Maybe mm. you're with Bill, and there there's a house that's full of clickers. And like I said, I'd played The Last of Us probably close to a dozen times beforehand, and that was always just a house of clickers that I yeah. went through, you know? Yeah. But walking into that house this time, 
you see a lot more detail. It's like, okay, there were people living here. And then you start to put the piece together and you're like, oh, these, these, these people got infected right away. As I learned from a journal upstairs, that means these clickers are probably the mom and dad who are living Mm -hmm. here. And now Mm -hmm. I am trying to get by them. And, and that's just one of those things that, that, this remake recontextualizes and not to say like that original, I'm sure some people had those thoughts in the original, but I, they're, they're harder to pull out, I guess. Of yeah. the experience. It's more upfront here. You know, it's more, it's presented better. I think it's the best way to put it. It's there to be experienced in a way that the technical limitations of the PS3 version just couldn't do. You know, mm-hmm. We are two generations removed from what that game was. And in the same way that you know, Demon's Souls being like remastered sort of made it look like a whole different thing, it, it, it changes your perspective on what that game is, you know, and for good or bad. And yeah, it, for me, it was that, that you had this great experience of seeing new things in something you had seen time and time again, which I think is very fitting for a game that is so very much aping cinematic experience, you know, mm-hmm. where, where the best thing about it is going back to it again and again and again, this static thing and noticing new little details, which is very hard to do in something that is always moving, you know. And uh, I think that's the greatest delight about the game, that you, you can just bring little new things about it. And... If you're of that much, I can see now for you, Jake, how it might have been that it, it kind of translates well in that regard. That you can have something that replicates that movie experience of little details and then sort of finding new things again and again mm-hmm. and again, but not just because of like you noticing things that you didn't notice before because you, as you were watching, but just by its slightly different paths taken, slightly different tactics taken, like that. And I think it's the majesty of game storytelling as it is, you know, that you can just go on a completely different path by making one different decision and it changing your story, your personal story in a way that no one else will have. And even in the most rigid narrative story that a game can tell, you know, that you just cannot replicate in a film. You know, it's, but it still feels like an extension of, of that mm-hmm. and that that's marvelous I, I i really love that about games when they do that and uh, when they just encapsulate that quality of cinema yeah naughty dog's ability to tie a story a self-contained in the larger scale of things really does has no bearing on joel and ellie's you know trek across the united states but their ability to tell these little microcosm stories that are tied to what another game with lesser writing or lesser performances would essentially be just a loot run. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, those little stories that are tied to these homes or these buildings that are abandoned are filled with loot. But the fact that they're able to make each combat interaction really replicate the bleak nature of this single slice of, you know, post-apocalyptic storytelling that they are, you know, going down, it makes for something that, you know, it exemplifies the writing in a way that, you know, even if you, some people might write it off as being like, it's a journal entry, it's just another letter, plenty of games do that. But it's like you guys have been saying, the little nuances in the environment, which I'm sure are exemplified by, you know, the remaster, or remake rather, 
with the graphics in that world and everything, it really does allow for each little piece of these stories to make up an experience that, you know, mm-hmm. for Joel and Ellie might be remarkable, but it overall, it just shows this is a world that's basically filled with misery that is not necessarily unique. It might be unique to them, but I love that the world shows that, you know, essentially telling people that like, you're not special, like your story we don't know the ending of your story at this point when you're playing yeah. through the game, but it's the type of thing that they're given examples all along their route of if they make one, I mean, um, I forget what his name is now. I think it's Sam, right? When he meets the two brothers and it's yes. the type of thing where it's like, what is really different about them? They're two survivors. And this could very easily be an example of what happens to Joel and Ellie. If, you know, by happen chance they get jumped when they're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. And all along the road, they're met with these mini stories that ended in a way that could very easily be their own fate. Um, and I think that some people maybe that aren't as big a fans of The Last of Us could write off that graphical update and all these things. But I just feel like the fact that a graphical update would almost force you or compel the player to pause for a moment to examine a scene or an environment with just a little bit more detail, the world itself is just is that much more rewarding. And, you know, mm. like we've said, we've all played through the original game multiple times, but at the same time, re-examining something that you've come to multiple times and having a newfound appreciation for it, I would find is one of the best reasons to do a remake. And of course, to do a remake as well as this one, it sounds turned out. And of course, you know, my benchmark is essentially the Resident Evil 2 remake, right? Mm. That allowed me to re-experience a game that I've played probably a dozen times, but having a newfound appreciation for the story that's being told, but also the little microcosm events that happened before you even got there. And there is something I think that, again, not to come back to the pricing and whatnot, but like I would personally attach a dollar value to having that experience and have it feel like it was new or just a more improved upon version of something I already love, um, especially when it's, of course, done right. Yeah. So one of the things that always I find interesting about this when people go on about what is value and what isn't is what they're taking away from something in a blockbuster level. And it always brings me back to Christopher Nolan and how people take his films and you know, he is very much the modern day version of you know, what Fight Club or Scarface was in terms of like a fan base that very much misinterpret the point of what Christopher Nolan does. And this is that sort of game where a lot of the people who enjoy the love The Last of Us aren't necessarily loving it for subtle reasons they're they're loving it for the base level stuff which is not a problem it's great that you can enjoy it on that level because it is at its core a blockbuster experience Mm -hmm. you know i i long ago eschewed the idea of it being like you know the road because it's not you know it's nowhere near that you know it hasn't got that majesty it hasn't got that despair it hasn't got that nuance you just can't do that it would be the worst fucking thing to play as a video game. Let's be honest, yeah. if you were actually doing that. <laughs> anyway, and that's why you know, my reference points are different. That's why I say you know, it reminds me of The Fungus. It reminds me of SOS Finalscape and Manhunt. Those are the things that tie it together for me. But on the narrative level, 
I think it's you know it's fine to be what it is, where it is taking the route it does, and where I think it suffers is, as I said, is that like the films I sort of mentioned, where the audience misinterpret what it is, they are the usually the ones that you know they were the ones that got angry about part two and what it did. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that will be like. Uh, misunderstand what who Joel is as a character which you know it's not hard to get from the outset that Joel is not a nice man and yes you can have some kind of empathy for the fact that he went through this terrible time at the beginning of the apocalypse but you know he chose to lean into it and really fucking make himself a despicable person you know you meet him a bit in that 20 years later thing you know, he is on the bad guy side. You know, if you're talking at that time, The Walking Dead wasn't quite there as a TV series in terms of getting to the factions and bad guys and the governor and all that stuff. It was just sort of emerging in the TV show. But he's the governor sort of type of guy, you know, at that point. You know, someone who's thinking he's justified in what he's doing and feels right and it's important that he feels like that. Mm-hmm. But you need to understand that to really get the most out of The Last of Us and to appreciate it beyond surface level stuff, I think. And so there's the divide for me, I think, is you need to understand the game for what it is and the characters for who they are rather than this sort of yeah, Scarface level of I want to be that guy sort of thing and it's like Mm. no you don't you don't you you can (laughs) admire the character you can admire the performance but yeah you don't want to be joel you you do not want to be joel in the same way that in part two you don't want to be ellie and even abby you know you don't want to be in that situation where something has driven you to a kind of madness you know the Mm. way you are basically acting for yourself and hurting other people to do it. Even in a world where that is commonplace. But that's the beauty of the storytelling of this this series, is that it's about that. You are basically saying, well, everyone's like it, so it feels normal that you would be like that. And the only people that don't, you know, that will call you out on it are usually the people that kind of have some sort of connection to normality as it was because they are safe in some sort of base and they have some sort of routine with normality and they're the ones that will always question you and say, no, no, come on, you, you don't need to be like this. And it's, you know, probably increasingly rare in that world to, to be like that. And I think part two's, you know, big tragedy, if you will, at the beginning, is very much part of what the world is at that point where it, everyone can justify what they're doing very easily. I, I have a friend who refuses to think of Joel as the bad guy <laughs> of, that, of that story. But but I, I, I think kind of to your point though, and I guess kind of disagreeing a little bit maybe, but I think one of the most successful things about The Last of Us Part 1, something that I didn't consider until I replayed it now because Part 2 didn't exist, was that like, I knew Joel was doing awful things throughout that entire game. I knew he was a bad person, but I felt so compelled to play as him, to follow his journey. I wanted to protect Ellie. I wanted to, 
like, you know, there's that scene where he tortures those people. And I remember when I first played that, I was like, oh, this is badass, you know? But it's like, this is, this is, this is awful. And like, this is an example of how he is, quote unquote, a, a bad guy. Yet I was still invested and I, and I still yeah. am invested replaying it. And, and I think that's kind of, that really stood out to me after playing The Last of Us Part Two because playing that game, I didn't necessarily want to be a part of Ellie's journey. Like as she was going through Seattle, I was just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this is so, like, I, I, I cannot empathize with you because I don't, I don't want to do this. Mm. Right. Right. And like, I know that's a little muddy because some people did want to do that because of, I think that was probably for me, one of the, the, the biggest issues with the last of us part two is that I didn't want to play that game. If that makes sense. But part one, I like replaying it now. I was like knowing everything that happens in two. I was still like, yeah, I'm still going to do all of this up until the last moment. Like I am with Joel all the way. Well, with Joel, you hope that there, you like, you want to see if there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Because you have to live Mm -hmm. his worst day. And then you see him 20 years later. And what I love about that time jump too, is that the game does not waste time trying to go back and flash back and show you the things that he's done, have people that, you know, have to spell out every single mm-hmm. detail of every atrocity he's done in this world that basically, if he just keeps moving forwards, he doesn't have to face his past and whatnot. And yeah. I found that, you know, it was the type of thing that the game does such a great job of just subtle pieces of dialogue all the way throughout that basically you don't need a flashback by the time you get to Pittsburgh or something along mm. those lines, because essentially like that moment when you guys get jumped in the truck, right. And the hunters ambush you and all these things, he calls the ambush before it even happens. And you get the sense, Oh, this is a guy that's been on the other side of this more than likely. Yeah. He basically and, says it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that just an interaction like that, that just it keeps moving forwards and it's such a fleeting line of dialogue that if somebody that's in it for like I'm going to kill as many people as I can that's their whole drive with this game then it's like that might not resonate with them in the same way that it does with us people that are really yeah. into understanding the story or you know they want to that is the main sort of draw of this game is that oh this is telling a post-apocalyptic story the way we would want it to be told mm-hmm. or you know rival the quality of storytelling that you know I think we would all like for more games to strive to do. But that sense of, you know, chasing that light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully, but not having to really have a great deal of attention shining back to where he came from, um, I just find to be, again, a quality that holds up all these years later from uh, the original's release. So just to, I'll be quick, I promise. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I think what part two does is basically invert the idea of what, the original does is mm-hmm. that you, know, you are uncomfortable from the beginning because you've experienced it you know you have experienced what joel has done where you had empathy for him and you kind of always root for him and again a great sort of movie sort of idea of no matter how many times you see the film and you want to root for the person and hope that they make it this time and despite knowing what happens it's there that that's part of joel and i totally agree with what you're saying jake you know joel's story as despicable as he may be as a person, you can sort of understand it in the environment and his situation and everything that's happened. But yeah, there's no, at the end, there's no denying that he is not a great person and very selfish in what he does. But yeah, so Ellie kind of learns that 
and you know, there's a naivety because she's still young and the world is what it is. She's so more ready to embrace that side of things. And when you think about it, her motivation in part two is very much the same as Joel's in part one, that it's born of guilt. You know, but born of a guilt of, I didn't do what I should have done and I'm not going to deal with it properly. So I'm going to go and you know, spur her on to keep going and keep fighting it. And, you know, she gets given the opportunity time and again to sort of learn from that mistake, you know, and learn that, you know, that's not the path. You know what Joel was, you know what he did, you know why, you know, the things he did at that point, but you kind of want to live in the idea that he saved you, he made you what you are, and yeah, it's, yeah, the flaws of humanity, which I think part two does really well, you know, is that they make Ellie, you know, the easy option would be to make Ellie a badass who's going on a vengeance trip, blah, 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 like that, and, you know, but yeah, you, know, you would have to ignore everything about Joel as a person to make it work in that regard. At the same time, Joel is an arsehole who has taught her to be like that and be violent and violence is the option. You think Pittsburgh, where she first has to kill someone with a gun like that, you know, and then the rifle scene afterwards where she you can see after that where she feels an acceptance for what she does. And that's, that is a big moment for her as a person. You know, it's like, you think of all these personal moments in your life where things will change how you are as a person. That's her big change. And so, yeah, I always sort of have that with her story where, yeah, I get that it's uncomfortable and it feels like, like, fuck off, stop doing it, stop doing it, stop Mm -hmm. doing it is absolutely the way it should be. But I can see why she keeps pursuing it. And yeah. Both, you know, that's why two stories are being told about two people pursuing their own ideal. And if anything, you know, Abby is the side of the story that you should be following there. It's the proper continuation of um, what we had before. When I come back to play the original, at the end of the day, like whether or not, and it bleeds into, you know, the second game as well, it's the type of thing where I was like Jake, where I was like, did we not learn our lesson with, you know, violence begets violence and, you know, playing a part, an unwilling participant in that continued, you know, cycle of revenge, cycle of violence and whatnot. It's the type of thing, though, where it's like I might have had more hesitation to continue if it had, again, not been for which, you know, this last week has reiterated how phenomenal those performances are. You know, Ashley Johnson, again, Troy Baker mm-hmm. and them and their writing and just how and it, you know, we've used the word cinematic to describe the storytelling is and it's very film-like and these things but it really is just in the the relationship building that happens in those cutscenes. again we've paid a great deal of time to highlighting how you know the environmental storytelling or just their sort of one-off interactions with elements that they stumble upon in the world of the last of us reinforces their personalities in these things but you know each and every cutscene, and i would say this is probably why I enjoy the sequel so much is that it feels like it's even more refined in that, but just every interaction feels like it has more of a purpose than just the general sort of exposition dump that we're kind of used to a lot of the time, right? We're finding out nuances about their characters that some of the things we learn at the end of the day have very little to do with their journey across the United States. And yet 
it further just reinforces that these are people that in the moment we really want to root for. And, you know, overall it ends up being like my drive to look past, you know, even if I'm taking this beloved character down a route that I wouldn't want them to go down, that I myself wouldn't want to go down. It's the type of thing where I'm just constantly hoping to, you know, chase that light at the end of the tunnel, which is why I think that even if those elements of the story in the second game that I had some struggles with accepting, it was the type of thing that the sequel replicates that in Joel and now in Ellie Mm. um, in a way that the fact that they're Naughty Dog's able to do that with two games, I, again, you know, revisiting the remaster, just find that to be remarkable. Um, You know, would I have tortured those guys like Joel did? Probably not. Do I want him to do that to, you know, find his supposed happy ending or a happy conclusion to his story from all the things that he's dealt with? Probably. I want him to, but at, at what cost? And I think that that, again, is just such a phenomenal example of writing and stories. I mean, it's not unique to the medium of games, right? It's the same in film. It's the same in literature. The fact that you're able to, you know, muster up sympathy for these people regardless of what they do to a certain point in these games um, or stories in general. It's it's really a remarkable trait uh, that I think, again, it makes me excited for the future of The Last of Us. It makes me excited for this multiplayer game that's going to be coming out in the future that has a story, but it's, of course, going to be a new story told in that universe. It even makes me excited for the show, uh, something that personally I was like not totally thrilled about you know i'm pretty much open to anything but at the same time i was kind of in the back of my mind i was like do we really need a last of a show that already was so cinematic in the game you know it's yeah. something that i would uh, attribute to being the closest i've experienced to a game that is movie like do i need a series that is eight to ten hours long of that i don't know but at the same time i'm just interested to see how you know we're going to get a new depiction of those beloved characters and you know, chances are we'll get some things that differ from that, but potentially there's something to be gained there. So I think that makes for a uh, an exciting future of The Last of Us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to not to spend too much time on The Last of Us too, but but I, I, I honestly replaying it made me appreciate The Last of Us Part Two a lot more as well. Yeah. Just kind of to what you guys are saying, because like I I, I had issues with that game. I still really liked it. I played it multiple times. Um, for me, it wasn't quite as successful as The Last of Us Part One. No, that said, that, yeah, I, I mean, but but that said, like, I I really appreciate the route and the risk Naughty Dog took with Absolutely. Part Two, and especially playing them side by side. It it, it it makes a lot of sense. And even though I'm not necessarily into Ellie's story in Part Two, into it's not the right word. I'm not necessarily like. Connected as much. Connected to it. I think that's part of what makes that game so powerful. And, yes. and, and messy. And like not messy in like a bad way, but just both of these games are very messy. It's conflicted. I mean, like, yeah. I mean yeah. That's some it's, of the best uh, examples of storytelling across all yeah. mediums, right? It's the ones that you as the consumer of it are conflicted. You have a certain level of investment in these characters. But at the end of the day, you're rooting for people to a certain extent that they might not be good people. But again, that kind of humanizes them in this world in a way that, you know, at the same time, you, I mean, you're describing it as having a messy relationship with it is the perfect way to put it because, you know, you might not agree with everything that they're doing, but 
it's the thing where you're still invested in them enough that it's like, let's see where this goes. Let's see, you know, what type of hopefully remedy to their own internal uh, struggles they're dealing with, along with, of course, you know, dealing with hordes of the undead and whatnot, uh, or rather the infected kind of comes across them. But it's the type of thing that, you know, messy can often lead to some of the most compelling stories and uh, yes, narratives. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing I would always note on this is that I always find that in part one, especially that each chapter has like something I like a lot, but also something I dread coming mm. back to. And you know, for a time I thought that it was just bad parts of the game that I was dreading coming back to. And uh, yeah, you know, like, uh, Pittsburgh when you're in the basement and doing that bit for instance and while there's a little of that there you know where you are you know it isn't just that you know there are stuff about it that doesn't feel well designed the most part I found that these were moments of pressure where resources are quickly depleted and there's no easy way out and you're feeling the stress of the situation and you're Mm -hmm kind of taken out of the comfort zone of like, well, I could just hang back and just take enemies out one by one. Like that, that, that. And Pittsburgh is great for that. That segment, you know, is pretty much the longest in the entire game. And it shows everything about The Last of Us, good and bad. And it, it's wonderful for that. You know, it, it's everything I love about The Last of Us and everything I hate, you know, because you can have hate about this game and love it still. And yeah, there are moments where you're just like, oh, fucking hell, this feels unwieldy and this doesn't feel like I can really deal with this situation properly. And I want it to be better. I think if it was too slick, it would detract from it as a thing. We're just talking Mm -hmm. about like The Last of Us Part 2 and how it has its issues both narratively and mechanically and in the way it's structured and that's fine i i love that in any medium anything that is flawed but ambitious to me is worth my time you know i I don't care i will give something like two stars that's been ambitious but i will probably remember it better than something i gave three stars that was okay you know yeah absolutely because it did something it did something to cause a reaction in me and i you know with this game and more so the second there is a lot of that where you can see why people can detract from it and go well it didn't do, it didn't do this oh the mechanics here are terrible or like that yeah. but i suppose you you have the context for it and you think well you know i can see why this is bad because they wanted to try more on this side of things and yeah it's context it's always context and personal context as we've spoken about already you know you will have your own personal way of coming into these games and dealing with it in that way and it's always going to push a certain narrative in your brain as a result but that's great because it's better than being held by the hand and told this is the way we go this is it this is all, we're all going to go here, we're all going to go there, we're, we're all going to come to this checkpoint, that checkpoint, that checkpoint. That's boring. It, you know, it's safe, it's pleasing, and for a lot of people, in the same way that certain movies work, that's fine, that's what they want. But 
I prefer games that make people angry or upset or frustrated without, you know, being broken, you know. Um, and, and these are such games, you know, the, which is why I think I liked The Last of Us in, in the first place was that as blockbustery as it was as a thing, it had flaws that, that were reminiscent of games that I loved that had flaws, you know, like I said, like SOS, like Manhunt, games that playing on modern day systems or playing whatever, they are unpleasant to play by modern standards, but they have something about them, some sort of attitude or danger that you're just like, oh yeah, uh, you just, I can't find this anywhere else right now. And, you know, The Last of Us captures so much of that that you can forgive when it sort of goes off piste. Yeah, I'll say for my last little thing, it just in terms of like, while I would say that in revisiting the remaster, you know, I've mentioned it now probably twice or two or three <laughs> times, where I was like, well, I wish this handled better. At the same time, though, I still can't deny that there are elements of that game that still are standouts yeah. now as much as they are back when I played it, right? And I think like an example would be the first time that I grabbed a guy and I, you know, you take a hostage basically and you put a gun to their head and the first time that I wasn't thinking and I didn't have any bullets in my gun but after realizing like if I dry fire on the guy then his buddy reacts to that or he reacts to that yeah. like the first time that that happens and even you know in replaying it this week that's one of those elements where I was like okay that's something I have to be mindful of that's something that is essentially taking qualities of film and putting it into a game. It feels mm. like something that would be in a movie where, you know, the good guy runs out of guns so now he, or bullets. So now he has to, you know, essentially bluff his way out of a situation and little moments like that are filled within both games. And, you know, yeah. like I've, we've all said those mechanics become more refined going into the sequel and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it handles better. And it sounds like much of that has continued into this remake, but at the same time for some of the issues that I might have with how the original handles, at the same time, it was still pushing the envelope in a way that really did make me reassess sort of my expectations of not only hor like horror games, but of just mm. stealth action games in general. Just thinking, oh, there are little things that you can add to these very basic mechanics of taking an enemy hostage. Like that was not a new concept when The Last of Us came out. And yet such a little moment like that adds a new layer of strategy to what is a very simplistic interaction with enemy AI that you're going to have not more than dozens of times during your time playing through it. And I mean, The Last of Us, both games are just, it's remarkable, again, all these years later, fulfilling those, a experience that from afar you could say, oh, it's just this other stealth action game that, you know, you're going to hide behind waist high cover. You're going to kind of, you know, throw bottles to distract people. But there's these little nuances in gameplay that come up and the nuances carry over into storytelling as well. That again, it makes it something that, I'm, in talking with you guys, I'm dying to get my hands on the remake eventually because it's <laughs> something that I think bridging that gap in terms of going from the original to the sequel and then going right into whatever this multiplayer game is that is going to you know be built upon that uh, that technology or that basically blueprint, um, I think is something that will help people that want to revisit the original games make that transition a little bit easier. Yeah, it, it's the most accessible version of a horror game that you can have. You know, I, I think it's 
very fitting that HBO are the ones doing a TV series because it is, it does feel like a HBO video game in so mm-hmm. many ways in terms of bringing something that is quite abrasive and alien to a more casual audience and making them take it and embrace it without even realizing it, you know? And I think that that's a big part of what the last of us has been as a thing, you know, that that it has created this fan base that that, that normally wouldn't go for it, you know, because it does so much more than just be a zombie game, if you will. And, uh, you know, not just beyond, oh, we changed some stuff, you know, in terms of zombie lore, but as a story, it, it told it well, it told it well, not just in terms of games, but like, um, you know, any medium, you know, it told, it used the best of its medium to tell the story brilliantly. And that's the biggest and most important thing about it, I think. Jake, I guess before we wrap up, are there any other of the features in the remake that you found to really be standout that maybe made you look at The Last of Us in a new way, whether it be just the way that you consume the game or whether or not it adds you know new facets to how you played through the game? I would say nothing quite as sweeping as that, but there are some cool features that I did mess around with that I, that, that I did enjoy seeing there. I mean, there's the gameplay modifiers, which add like slow motion effects and stuff, which you can make the argument doesn't necessarily fit that game, but as someone who's played through it so many times, I I found it fun to mess with that stuff. Um, there's a new new game plus mode, which I enjoyed quite a bit because I have replayed that game so many times that like playing a new game plus with your entire loadout that you get yeah. throughout your original game is, 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 is fun. And mm-hmm. it, it's weird to call this game fun, but like <laughs> there, there's something very, uh, satisfying about bringing a flamethrower to the first combat (laughs) there really is yeah that's what i love about new game plus as a a thing is just bringing stuff you didn't have early game to it and really pushing it to try different things and and freshen up what you'd already known because in many cases you know narrative like games tend to be very similar as they start and you know they don't no matter how many times you play them, they are the same game, they are the same thing, mm-hmm. you're push, you're walking the same path. So yeah, to have those little extra nuances and extra weapons is just, yeah, it, it does add flavor that needs to be there, I think. You know, it's like, you've experienced the story as is. Mm-hmm. This is your extended cut, if you will, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think to add to that, they also added um, permadeath mode, which I think mm. fits really well with the themes of the game. Oh, yeah. Not for the faint of heart. Definitely not for the faint of heart. But there are different ways you can do it. You can do it like restart each season, restart each chapter, or restart mm. the entire game. Mm. I did a run through where I just restarted each chapter. Um, and, and, and I really enjoyed it because like, my first playthrough, I did Grounded, which... Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily recommend for a first playthrough, but I I enjoy that quite a bit just because I feel more involved in that world. But uh, for for the second playthrough, I went into the difficulty settings and was able to adjust it manually, where I turned up enemy AI all the way and kind of kept everything else a little a little a, a little laid back to make it a little bit easier. But yeah. I still wanted that aggressive, smart AI. Um, and then I did permadeath, um, and, and it wasn't 
a tough experience, but it added a lot of tension to some of those moments that are already tense, knowing that if I die, I'm going to have to start 20, sometimes 30 yeah. minutes, 30 minutes earlier. And like I said, that's not for everyone. And I totally get why some people would skip over that. But, but I do genuinely think that adding that permadeath mode, which I think they did add to part two eventually really does fit the themes of the game. Um, yeah. The game may not be designed for permadeath to really work well, but I, 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 I think it adds more tension. Like I was saying, see it the same way as XCOM where you can work your way up to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I like that when games do that, where you you can have a permadeath mode that you can start easy or whatever or medium, and then just keep trying the game out as you and getting familiar with it, and then trying it on higher difficulty levels. The best games for me are those that do that. You know, that mm-hmm. take a baseline difficulty, let you get through it quite comfortably with your challenge. And then offer you something else, and then again and again and again, and to get to that level, you know, permadeath is something that I'm, you know, sickly in love with. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, I me must. Too. <laughs> I, a couple of masochists. I, yeah. it, it's no, because generally I don't want that in games. I want to have a nice time. I want to be happy mm-hmm. in what I'm doing and just go through it. But you know, there's no middle ground for me. It's either that, yeah. Or fucking torture. And XCOM has always been like the go-to for me in that. Like, I love the idea of just everything going fucking wrong because you've made one mistake and that be it. And, you know, doing that sort of thing in a game like The Last of Us is perfect for me. Given the world it is, it makes sense, you know, Mm -hmm. informatically. So, yeah, it is brilliant to have that here. I I think, too, like like you're saying how you got to work yourself up to that. And it's nice having that once you have worked yourself up to that point and you are very familiar with the combat, the combat kind of sings like Mm. a lot, a lot of people in the original, I I think a lot of people overlooked it because it felt clunky as you're saying. But I think with those refinements, like I, I would just reload encounters to, to, to redo some of that stuff just to make it a little better, make it a little slicker. Uh, Like I felt like that, uh, is it Soon He Legend who tweets all those incredible gifts yes. uh, of gameplay? But like, <laughs> I, I would go to the Pittsburgh section where Ellie's overlooking you, and I'd throw a bottle at the first guy, run up and stab him, turn around, pull out my gun, shoot a guy in the kneecap, run over to him, grab him as a human shield, and you know, take out a guy like that. But I have to do it quickly because if you wait too long, they're going to break free and then they're going to attack you. So it's like I take out that guy, shoot the guy I have, and then run to cover, like craft a craft an explosive quickly, like blindly throw it over cover and hope someone's running towards it. Meanwhile, you're trying to keep track of your flanks because those that AI will absolutely do that to you. So there's like a rhythm to it that is really fun, but I think it's difficult to get to because, I mean, partly to what you're saying, like the game is a little clunky, especially the original one. Obviously, a lot of that stuff has been worked out, but 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 there's there's a confidence to that combat that, that I don't think people see initially when they start playing because it does feel more methodical, slower stealth. And, and then I think the other brilliant thing that the last of us did that um, I, I, I still love and, and you have to use on grounded mode is, is just the fact that a lot of encounters you can just run from, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's like I'll, I'll walk into a room and I'll have 
two bullets and there'll be four people. And it's like, I could shoot two, but then they're going to know about me. So I'm just going to throw a bottle and run. And if they see me, I hope they don't shoot me. Um, and that, that adds to the story, right? Like that makes sense for those characters. Yeah. It puts you in the shoes of what they're trying to, you know, capture. Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. what we, what you guys have been talking about that, especially like the permadeath feature, right? The fact that that is yes, a feature, but it fits thematically. I think that that adds value to a remake, right? And I don't just mean monetary value or justifying the price point of it. Cause like we said, that's going to change, but the fact that, the way that people view re, uh, remakes or remasters, right, has a tendency to be like, well, I have to get something new if I'm going to rebuy something. And, you know, again, mm-hmm. removing some of the things that we mentioned, you know, whether it be financial situations or this and that, right? The idea is, though, that the good remakes, the ones that stick with us that we feel are justified, it has nothing to do with how they're priced. It's the fact that they're letting you re-experience something you know, it could be in a new way just from a graphical side of things. But what people like us, I assume, are looking for more than just, again, a prettier version of what we've played and enjoyed is some new facet that to some it might seem trivial. But to people like us that have played this game any number of times, I mean, in Jake's case, a dozen times, it's like adding a new facet to a game that you've played that often. That's a huge win, I would assume, in all of our books, right? The fact that you're able to make an experience that you've already enjoyed, that you already love, but applying something to it that it almost fundamentally makes you think twice about something that, you know, in some cases we've done any number of times in our multiple replays. And, you know, that for me would be true value. Uh, Thinking about, like, again, my benchmark being the Resident Evil 2 remake, the fact that they, you know, remove the whether or not people enjoy tank controls and those things, it let me re-experience a game that I've played by removing the element that was always one of those hurdles for me personally. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it became my preferred version of that game. Um, mm-hmm. And I always find that, you know, the remakes that do things that are subtle are the ones that end up making me kind of relive my initial love of a game that I've played any number of times. And it sounds like that's what The Last of Us did for both of you. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, so that's pretty fair. <laughs> but uh, Jake, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to chat about The Last of Us Part 1 with us. You know, we always enjoy chatting with people that are uh, as enthusiastic about a game as we are. So we uh, appreciate your time chatting horror with us for Safe Room. Thank you for having me. It felt good to get all this off my chest. Because obviously <laughs> I did, I, I wrote the review, but that's condensed and... I can't just rant about, you know, <laughs> how much fun I think the combat is when you get good at it. And yeah, stuff, you know? I mean, that, that that's the best thing about talking about things is that you, you can just go off on one about stuff. Yeah. And uh, rather than just in a review, that's really fucking hard. Like, it really yeah. is just hard without making people go, you didn't make a point. <laughs> I was going to say, our, we're kind of known for tangents here and we always enjoy guests that... Uh, that love having a tangent about something that is, you know, resonates with them in a way that mm-hmm. a general yeah. audience might be like, okay, you just spent two graphs on that for why to get that off your chest. So mm, that's yeah. something that we love about podcasting is that we get to really, you know, especially when we have people that have reviewed the game, like a couple of weeks ago, we chatted with somebody that reviewed immortality and it's like, mm-hmm. you spend so much of a time with a game like that. And the review, half of it feels like it's spent just, describing the mechanics so people even can conceptualize what this is yeah and then it's like just getting to go on a tangent about something that might not be notable enough to mention in a review but getting to chat with people that have played it is uh 
definitely one of the things that we love most about doing this podcast. So I'll, I'll tell you what, just a little bit of a tangent, but sure. reviewing a game that has been reviewed twice, has been re-released twice, mm-hmm. has uh, an increased price than what it, what it was before, but also not multiplayer was very difficult yeah. And I <laughs> do not want to do that again, if I'm being honest. Because it's also weird because yeah. Last of Us is one of my favorite games of all time. Like mm-hmm. on the Jake scale, Last of Us is a 10. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. that's how yeah. I feel about it. On the GameSpot scale, taking everything into account, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to just put 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 my emotion entirely in this review. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, obviously, you know, all my writing and like i stand by that score and and i think that i I gave it an eight and i I think that makes a lot of sense um given the context but like me you know i played through that game the remake the remake twice because i love that game you know it's one of my favorites of all time and it it was was, all that to say (laughs) it was it was a pain so it was nice to be able to just talk unfiltered about this game and yeah even the second one a little bit and even the original you know well the next time uh you get the inkling to chat about a game in a little more depth uh you let us know and we'll love to have you back i appreciate it it's been great thank you for listening to another episode of safe room if you enjoy the show please rate us on itunes and follow us on twitter at safe room pod for show updates you can also drop us an email over at safe at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys next monday